You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled In the Mind. Hello my radio friends. Welcome to the program and I'm so glad you've joined me today. When I was in my teen and early 20 years, ABC Radio featured a BBC comedy program called The Goon Show. Three principal actors were Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacombe. And this show was all about adventures and impossible situations, like sending the Tower of London to Paris and all other weird sort of things. From what I've heard about the production of the show, on many occasions, Sellers, Milligan and Seacombe threw away their scripts and just winged it. When that happened, the sound engineer, who had to add the appropriate sounds, must have just about torn his hair out, trying to bring in the appropriate sounds at the appropriate times. There were hundreds of episodes, and I enjoyed the show immensely. In my CD collection, I have a few episodes of The Goon Show, and from time to time, listen to these brilliant comedians do their stuff. It seems to me that the subtle and not-so-subtle British humour is much funnier and cleverer than what is often presented as humour in modern times. For me, American humour is too much in your face and really makes me even squeeze out a smile. The host of The Goon Show was Wallace Greenslade and at the end of many of the episodes he would say, It's all in the mind, you know. What is said in jest often exposes great truths. Many of you know or have at least heard of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And I refer to these from time to time in other Give Me the Bible programs. These commandments are God's rules for mankind. And if adhered to have proven to be great benefit to society. When society breaks down, it's usually because people do not adhere to the laws that God gave. Most laws are written on paper or parchment. These laws were so important that God wrote them himself on stone, indicating their importance and perpetuity. In our day and age, what has happened to these commandments? Have they been absolved? Have they been modified? Are they only applicable to certain people groups? The Ten Commandments were given at Mount Sinai to the Israelite people on their long overland journey from Egypt, from where they'd been liberated from slavery, to Canaan the land the Lord promised that they should receive. This is the area in the region we currently know as Palestine and Israel. Before answering those four questions, here is what God said the people should do with the commandments. 
in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, are his instructions. He said, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, what God said was, understand and make these commandments your rule of life in every way. Another instruction that God gave about his moral law is found in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2. And here are his words. Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I give you. Now the first of the four questions about what has happened to the Ten Commandments was, have they been absolved? Some people, sadly some Protestant groups, have misapplied the text in Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 and say that the moral law was dispensed with at the cross. They misunderstand that the law that was done away with was the ceremonial law, dealing about animal sacrifices as a way to obtain forgiveness of sin. And that's all. The moral law stands forever. Did Jesus say anything about the dissolution of the moral law? No. Instead, he pointed out its relevance and its perpetuity. Did the Apostle Paul write that it was to be dissolved? No. He maintained that the law was holy, just and good and was necessary for people to recognise sin. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 15 he wrote, When there is no law, there is no transgression, or that means there is no sin. When there is no law, there is no sin. Well then, what about the Apostle James, the Apostle Jude and the Apostle John? No, they all wrote about the permanence and necessity of the law throughout all ages. Well, does the moral law apply only to certain people groups? Some have suggested that the Ten Commandments were only for the Jews. You know, that is such shallow thinking. Yes, the commandments were given to and through the Israelites, but applied and still apply to the whole of humanity through all ages. If the commandments were only for the Jews, how could sin be identified for any non-Jew? Sin, of course, is transgression of the law, and that's pointed out in 1 John 3, 4. So if there is no law, there can be no sin. And if there is no sin, there is no need of a saviour. And if that's the case, religion, at least for those who claim that the law has been done away with, 
is a total delusion. How people can believe that Christ gave his holy life to forgive us our sins and yet maintain that there is no law to identify sin is a total mystery to me. It's like saying, yes, we are sins, sinners, but there is no moral standard to show that we are sinners. Are the people who maintain that the moral law was dispensed with at Calvary just plain simple, or are they under a delusion? Even a child can work out that you cannot do wrong unless there is a law or a rule to show what is right and wrong. The argument that the moral law was only for the Jews is also so weak it is pitiful, and anyone who holds that view obviously knows very little about God's word. If the moral law, the Ten Commandments, was only for the Jews, why have New Testament writers have had so much to say about its continued validity and have encouraged people to live by its precepts. The belief that the Ten Commandments was only for the Jews is nothing but blatant deception. Now we come to question three, and that was, have the Ten Commandments been modified? Yes, but they were not modified by God. As far as God is concerned, what he originally said and wrote on stone remains unchanged. And you might remember that voice I read, uh, verse I read from Deuteronomy, which says, don't add anything, don't take anything away. Well, they've been changed, but man has produced a different document purporting to be what God wrote, but it isn't. The Roman Church has accepted responsibility for removing the second commandment about not bowing down to, nor making, nor worshipping images. Why did they do that? Well, I think the answer is that it's simply because they like to have images in their churches and homes. Some devout Catholics regard those images as sacred and consider them as worship aids. But because God ruled that people should not worship in images, the Catholics got around God's ruling by simply removing the law completely. Sneaky, eh? But removing the law does not mean that it no longer applies. In place of the erased second commandment, to build up the number back to ten, the Catholic Church did a cut-and-paste job where they cut the tenth commandment about coveting into two. And voila! The number was back to ten. Simple, but dirty. And people with evil motives do that sort of thing. Today I want to focus on the ten command, Tenth Commandment, that is, the whole and original thing. 
From Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and I quote from the NIV, the whole tenth commandment. It says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or maidservant, his ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The other nine commandments are about our actions, but this one is about what goes on in the mind. It is, as quoted by Wallace Greenslade, it's all in the mind, you know. Does this mean the Tenth Commandment is of lesser importance than the others? Well, I believe the opposite is true, because all our decisions leading to actions come from the mind. This particular commandment points out the necessity to do God's will completely, even to our thought processes. The word covet means to desire or to yearn for, for something that belongs to somebody else. So, what is so bad about coveting? Well, firstly, the thought precedes the action. When the covetous thoughts develop into action, the action is theft. Secondly, and this is quite serious, coveting is an expression of what you think about other people. Say your neighbour comes home one day with a new car, a car that you would love to have but can't afford. You say to yourself, I would love to have that car for myself. Well, who gets the higher priority in your mind? Of course you do. Mentally, you place your interests above those of your neighbour. Now, we're going to have a little break here and we'll go on straight afterwards.
summary of the Ten Commandments, in response to a question put to Jesus by a Jewish lawyer one day about which of the commandments was the greatest, Jesus answered the question, and you can read what he said in Mark 12, verses 29 to 31. He said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely, this. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. You know, coveting is loving yourself above your neighbour. In other words, coveting is placing yourself and your desires and your wishes above those of other people. It is an expression of selfishness. Mind you, it's not wrong for you to buy new clothes, new car, or desire, if you're single, to get married. The problem lies with your motives, and whether or not those desires are channeled against someone who already has the things you desire. The Bible has some graphic stories about people who coveted and how they were punished. 
In 2 Kings chapter 5 is the story of Naaman, the captain of the armies in Syria, a rich and influential man. Naaman had a problem. It was leprosy. We don't know how he developed the leprosy, but it was a severe problem for this important man. Naaman's wife's servant girl was an Israelite captive who, knowing of Naaman's problem, mentioned that the prophet Elisha could cure Naaman. The Syrian king was approached and a letter was drafted and sent to the king of Israel so that Naaman could enter Israeli territory peacefully to see Elisha to be healed. I'm going to read from Second Kings 5 verses 9 and 10. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. There was no royal reception by the prophet, just a message to go bathe in the muddy Jordan River. Naaman was incensed and left angrily. But some of the servants with him pressed him to do as the prophet had said, and Naaman was finally persuaded to bathe in the river seven times. At the seventh time he was healed, and in an extreme, um, in extreme gratitude, Naaman and his party went back to Elisha's house to give him rich gifts. Verse 16, the prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he still refused. Elisha's servant was Gehazi, and being aware of Naaman's wealth and the expensive gifts he carried, he decided that he might avail himself of some. You see, he coveted. After Naaman left, Gehazi left as well and hurried after Naaman with an excuse. And he said, My master has sent me to say, Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Well, in today's values, that silver would be worth just under $30,000. That's Australian dollars. Now I'm going to continue verse 23 to 27. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them, then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them in ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away and they left. Then he went in and stood before Elisha. Where have you been, Gehazi? Elisha asked. Oh, your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down out of his chariot to meet you? 
Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes, olive grove, vineyards, flocks, herds and men servants and maidservants? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. And Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and he was leprous, white as snow. Gehazi's desire to have what did not properly to him and did not properly belong to him brought about a lifelong punishment. What he coveted brought him no joy whatever. Coveting is a serious sin. Hebrews 13.5 is one passage of several that says, Keep your lives free from covetousness and be content with what you have. To finish today, I want to share with you some advice about our attitude toward things. Consider the wisdom of storing up treasure in heaven rather than here on earth. Consider consider the brevity of this earthly life. Only what's done for Christ will last. Consider the fact that God has already given us everything we really need. Consider the fact that earthly riches become totally useless at death. Consider all the perils, dangers and warnings associated with riches. Consider that the more you have, the more you have to account for. Consider the fact that things will never satisfy. Only God can satisfy. Consider the example of Christ. The pursuit of things was not his primary goal. Consider the example of the early church, how generous they were in sharing. And consider God's promises related to giving. Remember, we can't outgive God. Money and possessions in themselves are not evil. But when they take the place in the human heart that is reserved for God alone, they become a stumbling block, which, if not dealt with thoroughly and biblically, can result in spiritual destruction.